I love the idea of stories coming to life. I didn't know at the time um, because I, I produced my first play at seven and I didn't know at the time that um, oh. at seven years of age that they say until someone pays you to do something, you're not considered a professional. Well, I charged everybody five cents and I made a dollar five that day. So at seven years old, I became a professional playwright. Interludes, a Peer Lighthouse production. This episode is brought to you by Interludes Extra presents Find Your Voice on Patreon. Become a friend, a fan, and join our VIP podcasting community today. And now, all the way from the south side of Chicago, give it up for your host, Val the Voice Johnson. It's Val the Voice Johnson, and I'm here with a special guest. Isn't it wonderful when you can talk to someone that's actually worked in entertainment, like they have a real grasp of how that goes? <laughs> I have I have the distinct honor of bringing on someone that I am learning from how to write, how to create, and then someone that knows how to fundraise when it comes to producing a project. There are been many of us that have operated in the space of producing for either television, for the stage and for screen. And it's tough. It's a industry that is very challenging depending on how you approach it. However, if you're a person that is fired up and they, and you, you know, your talent, you believe in your talent. It's like, ah, <laughs> that's this young lady. And I have to say that I am, I'm honored to have her here because she is an award-winning playwright, 24-time award-winning playwright, playwright uh, for the winning stage play, All My Struggles, All My Struggles, and The Wedding Plan. And this has been sold out at the world-famous Apollo Theater. She can tell you more about it than that. But most of all, I like to consider her my mentor and also a friend. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Monique Lisa Johnson. Hello. There she is. <laughs> hey. Hey, Val. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I see someone is here uh, saying hello. It's April. Hey, April. <laughs> hey, how you doing? <laughs> I just love her. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I am, I am excited about that. Well, you know what? Here it is. A lot of folks don't know what it takes to write and produce for the stage. Talk to us about your journey and what led you to writing and producing for, for stage plays first. Okay. Well, I thought, you know, when I was doing plays in my parents' backyard for so long, that's where I thought all oh. plays started. I thought you start off in the backyard and then from the backyard, you go to Broadway. No one told me that, no, there's a little bit more in between your parents' backyard and Broadway. But for me, I love the idea of stories coming to life. I didn't know at the time um, because I, pr I produced my first play at seven 
And I didn't know at the time that um, oh. at seven years of age that they say, until someone pays you to do something, you're not considered a professional. Well, I charged everybody five cents and I made a dollar five that day. So at seven years old, I became a professional playwright and I did mm -hmm. get the shower curtain from the bathroom without permission <laughs> from my parents. And I did tie a string to the side of the house and the other side to a fence with a stick so it'd be even. And so that is where I coerced the neighborhood kids into acting out a play that I wrote. One act play, um, maybe four rehearsals, and charge their parents five cents to see their own child. So I've been doing that for a long time. Um, how I got to Broadway, off-Broadway uh, situation was that in 2008, I decided after 20 plus years of helping everyone else with their production, stage crew, stage manager, sound, audio, lighting, casting, uh, craft services, I decided that I was just going to write my own production. And that's what I did. Uh, I sat down by my fireplace for nine weeks and I wrote a 114 page, eight and a half by 11 uh, script and had that you know, edited down until about 80, maybe 84 pages, about 84 pages. And mm -hmm. there was my first full fledged production, professional production. And that, so it took me nine weeks, okay. nine weeks of writing every day, morning to night. And uh, at the time, I think for me, I was more excited about the casting to see who would step into the characters and embody them. And so for me, I did that. So nine weeks of writing. So by March, of 2008, I'm sorry, March of 2009, it only took me two months to cast. Like I was calling people because I really needed strong singers. I needed people who could jump into different characters. And I had the, I had the privilege before, before I did that, I had the privilege of being mentored by Samuel E. Wright, who is the original Mufasa on Broadway. Like oh. he also played um, the crab in The Little Mermaid, Sebastian, and he also played Rafiki and he's Grammy nominated. So he was my my mentor. I at the time, um, my ex-husband and I, we went to audition for a play that he was doing in a town not mm -hmm. far from us. And I went in to read the line of the waitress, which is you're in and out, close the door. That's it. That's all I wanted to do. Just read that. I read that <laughs> and ended up with the starring role don't ask don't ask don't wow. yeah. got the starring role and so i was playing a backslidden preacher in the play the grapes of wrath and having him direct me and show me how to direct and even though i had a degree in it it was nothing like working with samuel e. Wright. nothing no nothing can compare to working with someone who can jump into characters like that so that's the journey and so the first performance, 600 people showed up at my first performance of a sold, sold out uh, the, um, the White Plains Performing Arts Center. And that's, it was on from there. It was on <laughs> from there. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and, and I'm now, now I'm knowing the actors, now the actor's face is coming into my brain. And, and Samuel Lee right here, unfortunately, just, I, uh, just left us a couple of years ago. Is that correct? Um, it was um, the end of, I want to say the end of 2021. The end of 2021. Oh yeah. 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 I, yeah, he, I, I he had cancer. yeah. He had cancer. 
okay i remember him and and he was in this very this is this is me thinking back to the cosby show he was in a very powerful episode of the cosby show and i remember that that episode bringing me to tears because it yes. was something that was wrong i don't know if you remember that episode i right? do remember it was his daughter and he found out that she was using drugs and so right. he went to his friend to mm -hmm. find out what should he do and he broke down because he didn't see that as part of their life and I didn't know at the time when I saw the episode that he would become my mentor. Um, so oh, I just saw the brilliance of his work. And that was a very emotional episode. Yeah, it was a very emotional episode. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So but I, he was a beast. Yeah, because a lot of the folks that produce plays, um, I think about Shelley E. Wright, David, David E. Talbert, these guys, when they went and produced sometimes some of the first works didn't do well. In fact, very famously, Tyler Perry said that the very first play that he produced didn't work. What was the difference? Was it the mentor? You think it was the mentorships? Was it your drive? What was it? No, I, I think, you know, Tyler Perry's first play, I know I've been changed. What mm -hmm. happens is sometimes we put so much money into the production that we forget that you also have to promote it. So I don't know if he had the money to promote it. And so what happened, he got, you know, the sounds of blackness involved. He got different people involved that, that he could, you know, have as part of it, but I don't know if he was able to put it out enough. And so someone that I know who uh, was encouraged to, to, to come out and see the play actually went to see the play, uh, loved it. Tyler ended up walking into the role of Medea at the last minute because the person who was supposed to play Medea walked out and uh, the yeah. person that I know was there and decided to, 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 to really promote it. So you don't hear much about him, but there would be no Tyler Perry if it wasn't for this person because he took a chance on an unknown playwright who was really writing from his own pain. So I think that I don't, I don't wanna say the difference is just, I think for me, I prepared, I prepared. I literally prepared. I wasn't sure what I was gonna do with the money at the time, but I did six side hustles for 18 months and saved $115,000. And so I prepared wow. myself and a lot wow. of people are not willing to do that. So I, going out the gate, I knew I had the money to do what I needed to do. And so that's what I did. But you know, I'm talking about no hair done, no nails done, no eating out, no movies, no coat, nothing. I literally was, you know, living in a $1.5 million house and mm -hmm. literally my kids were like, are we poor? <laughs> and I said, no, I said, but there's something that we have to do and whatever mm -hmm. it is, we're going to start putting the money away. And so it took me just shy of 18 months, but $115,000 later, I was able to do the production without having to skimp and scrimp, which is why, you know, I was able to do what I did. And um, the Apollo Theater, the way that came, yeah. I was actually promoting my production in Harlem. I was promoting it, even though it was going to be in White Plains, New York. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, you know, I need to go to the restroom. So I say this is going to become a book, how a trip to the bathroom uh, enabled me to sell out the world famous Apollo Theater. There so you I, go. I, I needed to go to the restroom. And so I said, what better place than the theater? I love the theater. I love being mm -hmm. at the Apollo. Been in, you know, been at it lots of times. And so when I went in, as I was coming out, Mr. Billy Mitchell, who's called Mr. Uh, Apollo, he saw my t-shirt because I'm very into branding and my t-shirt had the name of my play on it. 
And everyone that was with me, same thing. They all had t-shirts that said all my struggles. And he said, well, what does that mean? I said, it's a stage play. And he said, well, why don't you bring it here? He said it so easily as though he had just offered me a cup of coffee. And I answered him just as easy. Like, yeah, why not? So he didn't say that it's 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 for the day. He didn't Mm -hmm. say that part. That's, I think he missed that part, but um, yeah, (laughs) Uh, but I did. And so it it must've been six months later, I, I was opening part two of the play at the Apollo Theater and the wow. one year anniversary of the first place. So I sold out the Apollo four times in the same year. And then in the fifth year, sold it out. Yeah. But um, yeah. no, 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 no investors. I had one person who was like, well, you know, I was like, can you help me with this? And they helped me with, with that, but no investors, no radio, nothing. Just, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, what's very fascinating is that you I know you walked right past it very quickly. You saved up, did six side hustles, $115,000. Like that, that's no feat. That's no, that's an unbelievable uh, feat for someone. And and it's believable. Believe me, it's believable, but it's, you, you put your mind to it. And you're like, this is the goal. Right. And um, for, I don't know how it works in, in, and plays and definitely in stage productions, uh, people always say there's a whole lot of red tape you got to go through, especially if you want to have something produced on Broadway or off Broadway. Mm-hmm. I would, would you, would we would, would we consider Apollo off Broadway because it's not directly where all the no, plays are? No, Broadway, it, it, it's not mm-hmm. where it is. It's how many seats. A Broadway theater thought. is 750 seats or more. Um, okay. But there is a thing called off Broadway and off off Broadway. So there mm-hmm. are, but it's, but really for Broadway, it's the amount of seats. And being in New York City, um, people think Theater Row and they think downtown, you know, in the 40s. But there are theater, like the Apollo Theater seats 1,521 people. So that's not considered like, you know, that's a major venue. And it, because it's such a major venue, you, you're going to have all, I mean, all the celebrities. When they, when I did my first tour backstage, they showed me where the Supreme mm-hmm. slept. They showed me where the yeah. Jackson Five slept. You know, and right. Billy Mitchell, who's the person who asked me and said, why don't I bring my play here? He he was the one picking them up from the airport. Gladys Knight, The Temptations. Wow. I mean, I would never consider that not a Broadway theater for the fact that it had so much celebrity. James Brown and then Michael Jackson as an adult. You know, that's history. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, there's nothing you can do about that. You can't fake that. You can't <laughs> fake that. That is like, to see, and, and to see your play in the marquee. I've gotten to see that so many times, you know, that's huge to see my name in lights with the name of my play and then across it sold out. Come on. <laughs> that was surreal. <laughs> that was surreal. That was surreal. Oh. Yeah. The theater closed in 77 and I thought the world had come to an end. I had stopped uh, coming to see concerts here. People stopped coming to the theater. We thought it was the end. Thank God this man that I admired campaigned for when he ran for Manhattan Borough President. His name was Mr. Percy Sutton. He and some investors bought this building in 1981 out of bankruptcy. Uh, He and legendary radio pioneer, Mr. Hal Jackson, okay? These gentlemen, along with some investors, bought the building which we now call the Apollo Theater. 
reportedly for $250,000. They invested about 10 million or more to uh, fix it up. Renovations and all. Renovated okay. the theater. And then when the theater was planned to open in 1984, I came to Mr. Sutton for a part-time job. There's a lot of history here. Oh, a lot of history in this theater, absolutely. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Have you seen it? It's the weekly chat with EP Michael Womble, coach Tony Thompson, and host Val The Voice Johnson. Interludes Extra presents Talk on Tuesdays. Join us and other special guests as we break down the latest topics surrounding music, movies, and sports every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern, live in our chat on our Interludes YouTube channel, Facebook group, and now on Pod TV on Roku. You grew up in the Bronx, and, and what I know from just conversations I've had with you one-on-one -on -one and then on, on other virtual stages is that people before they were famous you knew them <laughs> they lived down the street from you oh, but yeah. <laughs> for, for, <laughs> but your first experience in either being in front of the camera or acting was what what was that like what was that um, first experience beach street ah, beach street uh, okay. 1982 beach street that mm -hmm. was my first um opportunity to try out the acting chops but in a hip-hop movie can you imagine a hip hop movie, um, yeah, Beach Street. I was a what they call uh, extra, but a extra, which means that you see me in specific scenes because I'm running across the street, I'm standing in the front, um, even the breakdance scenes, I'm right there. I'm next to Radon Chung. I'm next to um, guy, um, uh, oh, guy's last name, Ruby D. Son, Ruby D. And Ossie Davis. Mm -hmm. And guy, guy, guy Davis. So I'm, I'm, I'm next to Guy Davis. I'm, I'm there with uh, Harry Belafonte. A lot of people don't know he was one of the producers. So mm -hmm. Michael Holman, who was also a guest on one of our shows, um, it, the New York City, he, the New York City Breakers, he managed them. And so wow. I did television with them. So that was my first experience, and I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was a teenager, and it was like. Wow. Because you don't know you're making history. You don't yeah. know. You don't know. know. You really don't know. I mean, the New York City Breakers and the Rocksteady Crew and Crazy Legs and Africa Bambata, the Treacherous mm -hmm. Three. I mean, we're all like at the Roxy. You know, at the time it was called the Roxy. Um, mm -hmm. And we're filming a movie with the legendary Harry, Be Harry Belafonte. Come on. I know. <laughs> you don't know this. <laughs> I got a chance. Uh, one of the rare where people that I got a chance to meet um, was a couple of years ago, I met Harry Belafonte and they literally brought him in and uh, I was coordinating a picture. And a lot of people were just kind of sitting at his feet because they just wanted to know because there's just so much history that's in his mind and, and how it goes. We have Mark Lee, he's got a question for you. He said, did, did you ever work with the legendary Garland Lee Thompson of New York? Or the oh, Larry. Wow. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard right. those names in <laughs> so long. <laughs> I didn't work with either. The, I knew who they were because I also brought my production there. But I do remember the um, National Black Theater Festival was, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you had to be accepted into the festival. That was no easy feat. But I do remember... Um, you know, hearing about them and what they were doing. And um, I did the DC Theater Black Festival, 
I brought wow. my production there. But mm -hmm. when the National Black Theater Festival was really like really big and every you know everybody was was going, I was probably too young to really like bring a production there. Um, mm -hmm. But it and they did turn down Tyler Perry. <laughs> just to, oh wow! To, <laughs> to be they real. turned him down. They were like, sorry, we don't do Chitlin circuit buffoonery they turned him down yeah yeah and now i guess i guess they're sorry, <laughs> they're sorry. <laughs> oh my god but um yeah it's 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 been an experience it has been and i've done mm -hmm. over 200 productions so it's it's been experience and i've been in theaters the orlando shakespeare theater the mm -hmm. um there's a beautiful theater in in atlanta so it, it was the first marquee i i had where my, we, drove, we drove up. It's the Harrell, Haren or Her, I don't know. I took a picture mm -hmm. of it. It's it's way down my timeline on Facebook. I just tell okay. you that right now. <laughs> way down. The timeline. But it was it was the first marquee. That was the first marquee. Wow. I do I do have to say that. But uh, but getting back to hip hop, that was uh, Beach Street. That was the first movie I ever did. Um, the first opportunity to be around people who were I grew up with in my neighborhood, exactly. uh, Africa Bambada. Africa Bambada mm -hmm. was like, so this is my house. His building was right there to the left of me, um, Mark Terrace. And so I would see Bam all the time and he would wave, you know, who's this little kid? I would wave, he'd wave, you know, no big deal. Um, I think I mentioned uh, Christopher Williams was my neighbor. Our, mm -hmm. our We shared a fence. So literally my neighbor for 12 years grew up together. And uh, Stacey Dash, I didn't know her, but they, when they dated, you know, they, you know, I'd see them. So I, a lot of people, a lot of people. <laughs> cool Herc, the Godfather, the, the originator. Godfather. I would be walking to ballet school and he would be walking towards the, there was a club, I think it was called the Black Door. I'm not sure because I was too young to go to a club, but I would see him with crates, not knowing that they were albums. Like I knew what the album was, but because wow. they were in crates, I could only see the outline of the crate. And he mm -hmm. would be on his way to DJ and set up for a, a club. And I'd be walking to ballet school and I would just say mm -hmm. hi and he'd say hi. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I, I I didn't know. I did not know that I was a part of, of, of history, uh, you know, history of hip hop. I started rapping at probably 15, 14, 15. Yeah. And, and the one thing that I know, and I'll just, just be, I'll share this. You are featured as a picture of you in the African-American Museum Smithsonian in Washington, DC. In the, the African-American Museum in DC, the mm -hmm. hip hop museum in the Bronx and the Smithsonian Museum, but mm -hmm. it's not a picture. It's actually the TV show that I did with the New York City Breakers with Run DMC, with the Treacherous Three, with Shannon, who did Let the Music Play. Um, wow. Literally, we were all, it was the first hip hop TV show. And they have the whole scene with me in it. Um, yeah, they they have the scene in, in it. And I walked in, I, I walked in and I'm facing Tupac and to my left is Biggie. And then I turn around and I see myself on TV. <laughs> On the TV wow. monitor, and I'm like, "That's me." <laughs> so, oh my was, god! Yeah, that was interesting. And then, and on, on the opposite wall, kind of to the side of where I was, was all the women of hip hop. You had Queen Latifah, Moni Love, uh, Yo Yo. You had um, Salt and Pepper, and Salt and Pepper. I used to go with them to do. Um, they used to do public access. 
So I'd be in the studio with them and we'd be talking, Cheryl and I, Sandy and I would be talking and um, their first major uh, tour that they came off of, Cheryl was dating Herbie, Herbie Lovebug, who was their producer. And so mm-hmm. I, I had a meeting with him and here she comes down the steps. She's like, hey, so you really don't know. You really don't know. You know, <laughs> you really don't know. I did a movie with Chris Rock. He, he was no, he was unknown at the time. He was mm-hmm. in Crush He was in Crush and, the, and this is and all of this history in your background and then you decide you know what i want to do plays i'm gonna i'm gonna write i'm gonna produce them i'm gonna actually put that out there and 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 make it happen and the one thing that you really remember about uh, all my struggles, all my struggles. If you were to say the one thing that stood out to you uh, the most about that production, what was it? I want to say it's a scene that I wrote between the mother and daughter, okay. and it, it's it's a tear it's a tearjerker because the, the the daughter and the mother have like kind of like a tumultuous relationship, and the daughter's pleading with her mother to let her sing to give her an opportunity to. Um, you know, give her an opportunity to just shine. And then she keeps reminding her that that her dad didn't make it and she really needed to focus on other things. And so I have both actors on opposite sides of the stage and they're both crying out, but for different reasons. And the mother is like, no, protect my child. I don't want her to do this. This is something that I just didn't see in her future. And the daughter is crying out, mom, I really need you to let me sing it. It's one of the most powerful scenes because at the end, it is there's like an a roar and you hear the audience and you you can tell it's an emotional scene so that's a, a highlight a very a very big highlight yeah yeah very emotional right. and very uh rememberable memorable <laughs> so one thing i'm learning with you now is how to write and how and as i wrap up how do you teach people how to tap into they're the writer that's living inside of them how do you teach that i don't know (laughs) you know what it's not so much teaching it but it's Mm -hmm. pulling out what's already there i can't Uh teach you how to write but i can i can guide you on using words that are going to help you to build that story so i think a lot of times what happens is people look at the whole apple and how do you eat an apple one bite at a time and that bite represents a word. And if you use that concept of just taking one bite at a time, one word at a time, you can add to that. You bite, you chew it up, and you add to it. And by the time you finish, the book is finished, the apple's done. <laughs> you know? <laughs> apple's done. You know, how do you mm-hmm. eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite you at a time. take little pieces. Because people think paragraphs. People think finished book. People think, like, by the time they get the idea for the book, they're already at at a store trying to sell it. And I'm like, no, let's take let's take <laughs> little pieces, little, little pieces mm-hmm. and start to build. And if you take little pieces, before you know it, you are done. You know, wow. before you know it, you are done. It's, it's not so much that it's difficult or it's easy. It's what's inside of you and what are we building? Are we, are we mm-hmm. building a novel? Are we building a memoir? We are building a self-help book. Are we building a technical book? Are we doing something for children? What are we building? If you don't know what you're building, you can't write. And if you don't know who you're writing for, you can't build. Ah, 
Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And when people say that I want, I have something in me, I, I need to get it out, I want to write it. Uh, and the best way to encourage that is, is it just to journal? Is it just to write it out? Or how, how well, would you advise journaling, Well, journaling is good, but it's random. Because, okay. because when you journal, you're just purging however you feel, whatever's going on in your mind. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily structured. And that's okay, because sometimes out of that chaos comes something beautiful, right? Ah. Right? So you don't necessarily want to stop someone from journaling, but it's not necessarily, um, they, there's not, there's, there may be no specific purpose. How do I say it? Like, maybe like that. Like if you, if you let's say you're journaling the day, this is what okay. happened today, but that may not be what you're writing about, but you may pull pieces of what you journaled and pull it into your story to help build it. But journaling is good because it helps you to get your ideas out. You flush out ideas or you keep track of what you've done. Um, and when you keep track of what you've done, you can pull from that. It's like cherry picking. So now you can look at your journals. There are people who have 50, 60, 70 journals. They've been doing it for years and they can look through it and pull out the pieces that make sense to the story they want to write. And it helps with memory. Um, but journaling on a whole is just good and it's therapeutic. But if your book is a self-help book, journaling your personal life is not necessarily going to help you with that self-help book. Research is going to help you. Um, mm -hmm. Really taking your time and thinking about who the book is for. Are you speaking their language? You know, so right. so I think journaling is good, but it has to have a deeper purpose and a deeper why in order for it to make sense for your book. Right. Right. That's important. That's definitely important. If people wanted to find out more about how they can tap into the writer within them, what, what, where would they go? Well, there's a link. I, I actually kicked off my six part series today, just before this mm -hmm. interview. And it's, I'm doing it live on Facebook. And for some people who may not be able to be present for all of them, I'm doing every, well, I'm doing every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the month of April. And if you sign up, you can, you can just grab the replays, um, leaving it up for 72 hours. That's free 99, free <laughs> 99 for 72 hours. And then after that, the six part series, you'll, you'll get access to the entire series for $37. And the reason why I'm doing that is because really, and if you look at the title, I'll move to the side, it's how to write a book and market it after a pandemic. So I understand mm -hmm. I'm sensitive to the fact that a lot of people, you know, because of the pandemic didn't get an opportunity to really tap into what they wanted. They were more concerned about all the other things happening. But right now, what we're going to do is through this series, start to write that book and really take that deep dive into what the book should be about. Who is your audience? And when you find out who your audience is, what do you want to tell them? And where's your inspiration coming from? And can you avoid imposter syndrome? Can you avoid feeling uh, indecisive? Can you avoid feeling unworthy? So these are the things we're talking about so that we can build the stories uh, that we need to build. And if it is a memoir, remember the story is about you, but it doesn't belong to you doesn't belong to you at all yeah yeah so i'm i'm currently being mentored by <laughs> monique i'm just gonna put it out there i have a book that's coming out i know that's it's great. in me <laughs> i gave you homework too yeah i have 
I, did you I see your homework? homework? I saw my homework. I sure did. So There's a lot of homework in there. <laughs> <laughs> Mother, I want to thank you so much for coming to Interludes Extra and wanting and just sharing just a lot of your your background and just the history of music and plays and production that you have have gone through. And if you want to know more about Monique, I have her information. It's in the chat. And then also you are available. Your your social media handles are on um, LinkedIn. Yeah. Yes, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, on on Facebook, um, um, it's Storytelling in 3D Academy on Facebook. So mm -hmm. Storytelling in 3D Academy. Um, mm -hmm. On Instagram, it's at the Monique Lisa. Uh, LinkedIn, it's uh, Monique Lisa Johnson. So if you, I mean, you know, if you look me up, you'll, you'll find me definitely. And then Mark also asked the question, did I get to meet Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis? Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, um, Ossie Davis was the keynote speaker for my eighth grade graduation. I didn't know that I was going to meet his son, Guy mm -hmm. Davis, on the set of, of Crush, uh, uh, Beach Street, and we would mm -hmm. become friends. So we were, we, we were friends and we, you know, it was, it was like, I met your dad, you know, it was that kind of thing. But That's Ruby D has always been one of my favorite, favorite actors favorite actors yeah. and so I've been to their house in New Rochelle um I, I I did get an opportunity to meet them years ago but I met Ossie Davis at my graduation and then I met Guy um on set of Beach Street and then I met Ruby D at her house so I didn't they they were all three different places three different people but yes I did get to meet them I did get to meet them yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful wonderful <laughs> Monique Lisa Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on Interludes. Yes. <laughs> and we'll be somewhere in these clubhouse streets. Uh, yes. Right. <laughs> having, a good, having a good old time. For more information about Monique Lisa's writing courses and other digital downloads, please visit her website, MoniqueLisaProd.com. To view our entire conversation, please visit our Interludes YouTube channel. Original concept by Valerie Johnson. Written by Michael Womble. Produced by Michael Womble and Valerie Johnson. Original intro and outro music produced by Kendall Nesbitt. Interludes, a Peer Lighthouse production. This episode is brought to you by... Interludes Extra presents Find Your Voice on Patreon. See behind the scenes with Interludes tips on how to become a podcaster and merch featuring our interludes logo become a friend a fan and join our vip podcasting community today by visiting the website patreon.com forward slash interludes become a future sponsor or advertiser on our podcasting platform by visiting our website today to subscribe to our youtube channel or join Interlude's Facebook group, visit the website linktree slash peerlightmedia. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash peerlightmedia. -E